Welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. I am really excited. I know I always say that to be here today with my really special guest. This is an interview that I've been really looking forward to having for a while. And I've been really thinking about all the juicy questions I get to ask. And I would say that this is as much a special treat for me as I think it's going to be for you because I have Joanna Hunter in the house. And full disclosure, Joanna is my mentor and she is just the bee's knees. So Joanna Hunter is a spiritual life and business coach, author, speaker, and spiritual teacher. Her sole mission is to teach clients how to evoke magic in both their life and business in order to raise their vibration and consciousness, thus raising the vibration of the whole planet. She takes a refreshing, no BS, and I can really attest to that, no BS approach, and is often referred to as the most grounded woo coach you'll meet. Joanna, welcome. I am so excited and delighted that you are here today. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited for this. I'm absolutely buzzing. <laughs> me too. I think by the by the end of this, I'm gonna have that like really good cheek ache, you know, when your whole body is just like, ooh, just so full of happy and so full of joy and energy. Oh, so we just have, I, I cannot wait to dive in with you. And so I guess I always love to start at the very beginning with people. So tell us about you as a highly sensitive baby empath, magical woo, Joanna. Like, what was it like as a really little person? I'm one of these people that always say that I was born when my spiritual gifts switched firmly in the on position. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a time where I don't remember having those spiritual gifts. So, you know, sometimes you get asked the question, people say, you know, when did you know you were psychic and things like that? For me, what was the surprise was that everybody else wasn't. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because <laughs> my normal was that. So as a child, it made for what I call a very character building childhood because I had real difficulty as a very young child to actually tell the living from the dead. So I would see spirit and I've always had the gift of spiritual sight. So I've never viewed the world in the way that other people have viewed the world. And in fact, I still find it quite hard to wrap my head around how others see the world like Every time I look at anybody or anything, there's colors, shapes and things moving in and out. And I'm told that that's not normal. That's not how other people are perceiving things. So I see this all the time. But as a young child, I also had people that I would call the wispy people. And the wispy people, I realized weren't, as I got older, I realized they weren't actually there. They were in the spirit world, but I could see them as though they were real and um, and often I could have conversations with them as well. So, you know, I'd be standing. Uh, I remember once uh, being in, in nursery and uh, saying, oh, your grandmother is so nice. And them looking at me horrified, this older child looking at me horrified and saying, my grandmother's dead. And I said, no, she's just standing right here and she's telling me all this. And of course, this kid started to freak out. Um, I was asked to leave Sunday school um, first of all, I asked too many questions for Sunday school. And second of all, I was asked at the age of six to never come back is what he told me. At mom. the age of six, uh, to never come back At the age of six, when I gave school. him a message from his deceased mother, oh. um, he they, they said, you know, don't bring your daughter back, basically. Oh. Yeah, so it was character building. Um, I often, you know, picked up and felt other people's emotions and stuff like that as well. Um, and often had knowledge of things that 
I literally had no business having knowledge of because, you know, it would be, I would just know it psychically. I would just know and and I would say things. And for adults, that could be very sort of discombobulating because they'd be like, well, how does she know that? And, you know, my my mom would, my poor mother would try and like explain, you know, but sometimes there was just things that just couldn't be explained. My father was an artist and he was showing in a modern art exhibition that was in the grounds. It was during the summer and all the modern art pieces were outdoor pieces and they were all in the grounds. They were all big statues. And he was showing his piece out in the grounds and of a really old house in Sweden. And I ran off and by the time my mum caught up to me I was standing um giving the caretaker of the house absolute what for how dare they have changed the grand staircase um <laughs> and um and then I ran further into the house my mom and this caretaker running after me and I ran into this big room and I said, well, where's all the musical instruments? This is the music room and this won't do. The music room has always been red and why is it blue? And the caretaker <laughs> looked at my mom and said, has she been here before? And my mom's like, no, we've never been here. And she says, Joanna, how do you know these things? And she said, I used to live here, of course. Mm, mm. Um, and and my mum was like no we've never lived here and I said not when you were my mummy and the caretaker is able to confirm that due to fire laws they had changed the grand staircase and enclosed part of it so that it would conform to fire standards and indeed we were standing in what was the music room but they had changed it and the original music room was indeed red and not blue anymore. So all of the things that I said were true. And of course, you've got this man standing, sort of scratching his head, wondering, how does this kid know this? And my mum at the same time trying to fumble an explanation, probably at the same time having her own little freak out, wondering how I would know all these things. Right, right. But then, you know, according to me later on, I had lived in that house and um, I had grown up in that house with my sisters and you know, and I had learned to play not only the piano and the violin and the cello, all in that music room. <laughs> wow. Mm. So it's, you know, that was sort of childhood. Then I had a like a really big, I don't want to call it trauma, but it was kind of traumatizing of where I left Stockholm and then moved to the UK. Well, I moved to Scotland with my family when I was just 10. And you know, I'd always been the strange kid, but now I really became the strange kid because not only that, I not only was I the psychic child, but I was also the foreign child. And, you know, obviously my my first language wasn't English, it was Swedish. And, you know, and my mum was um, in Sweden parents in Sweden tend to be very hands-on parents so they're very involved and you know we do a lot of family things and a lot of family events in Sweden that's very very normal we moved to Scotland in 1984 children should be seen and not heard Mm. so I had a weird mummy as well because she was always uh, you know we were always out doing stuff as a family and stuff and apparently that was like really bizarre uh, and stuff like that so yeah so then I had that kind of added layer of no, it was really weird. So not yeah. only did I speak more than one language, which was weird, I um, also had my psychic gifts, which was weird. And then I was Swedish on top. Mm. Well, and I think so many people who are highly sensitive, empathic, psychic, just sort of in the woo world, childhood is not necessarily easy because I think a lot of us are recognized as different from a very, very early age, but to go the culture shock that you must have experienced, I just, I can't even imagine. Yeah, my, I mean, we moved from Stockholm, which was a massive capital city, and we moved to Inverness, mm. which wasn't a capital city. And it at that time, Inverness didn't even have city status. So it was, it was a town. And my mum likens it to moving from 1984 to 1954. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was very, um, very sort of, 
underdeveloped, I suppose, at that time. I mean, in, in 1984 in Inverness, you couldn't even get a cappuccino. People didn't even know what it was. Wow. You know, it was like very kind of, you know, it was a small Highland town. It was a small yeah. Highland town, you know, um, and things like that. And obviously now it's very cosmopolitan and, and you know, and we have all different types of restaurants and things like that. But back in 1984, the fanciest thing that you could get was a curry and a Chinese. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, now you were living. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I can really relate to that going from one decade or one and one time frame to another when I left moved from Boston up to Maine I moved into like they roll up the sidewalks really early at night and and my my then business partner said every hour north you go you go back a decade and it is there is something about being in the country that just it's not the same as being in the city and uh, mm. I personally prefer being in the country now, but uh, me too, yeah. me too. I think it took a while. It took a while, but it definitely it grew on me, um, and I love it now. I wouldn't like. I sometimes want to kiss the tarmac um, when I arrive back to Little Inverness's airport. Our airport is the cutest, dinkiest thing you'll ever see. All the planes land on the tarmac and everybody gets off on the tarmac. There is no like fancy tunnels or anything like that. We have like one arrivals hall. It's tiny. And before all of the kind of flight things and stuff like that, actually the outside people used to help you with the luggage. Like the people waiting on you coming in from the flight, they used to be able to get into their rivals hall and help you with your luggage. Um, so it was very sweet. It's like tiny. I always think I always love watching people's faces at Inverness Airport because especially when the ones that you see landing in from flights like London and big places, I think they're they look so confused. They're so dazed. They're like, is this like the actual airport? <laughs> yeah, we're our airport in um near where I am, Portland, when I first moved up here, it was a very, it was a fairly small airport, but it's been actually really interesting watching the airport grow over the last Mm. 20 years. It's, it's really because it is now, it is now like, looks more like an international jet port, which is what it's called. Whereas it, you know, when I was first, when I first moved up here, it was definitely that kind of really sweet, small airport that just we did have gates, so we weren't as small as you guys, but definitely. I think there's like three yeah. gates. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's yeah. your lot. Uh, yeah. But it's lovely. I love it. I love it because you get through that airport so quickly and stuff like that. And it's lovely. And I can always, always feel like I wanted to kiss the tarmac when I arrive back. It's been really fun to be away. It's really fun to go to the big cities and things like that. But it's so relieving, so lovely to come back to our patch of turf back in Inverness. Right there with you. So going back to your first arrival in Inverness, because obviously you figured out how to turn it around. Like you figured out because like we were talking about the culture shock of going from Sweden to this small town Hmm. in in Scotland. And now you're kissing the ground, (laughs) you know, that as soon as you get home, like you're, you're, you're jumping out and kissing the tarmac. So, you know, like, like there's clearly we got an in-between story. And I guess I'm thinking I really want to talk about the piece of one of the pieces of your story, which is the fact that you've dealt with multiple organ failure. Mm-hmm. But before we go there, like what are sort of the like, I don't know, like what was what would you say might be sort of the highlights between sort of, you know, moving, being 10 years old and moving to Scotland and kind of the just kind of the journey to to some of the the next peaks I guess the next peaks and valleys before we get to the multiple organ failure part of the story Mm. and I think for me I mean my teenage years were I felt my teenage years were very challenging I had by the age of about nine ten I'd really managed to squish down most of my spiritual abilities the only Mm. one that I couldn't do anything about was the spiritual side it was just always there but as for like I really suppressed everything else Uh, so no more weird conversations no more you know and a very I had become very aware that that type of 
conversation was not welcome. So I become very edited in what I said and who I said it to and things like that. So so by 9.10, I had really, really managed to kind of really finesse the suppression of pretty much all of my gifts um, other than the spiritual side. And then I hit about age late 14, 15, and it was like a champagne cork in a bottle of champagne that had been shook. Oh, wow. And it was like the cork popped mm-hmm. off and I would have day long deja vu. I would be able to finish strangers sentences. I literally during that time in my life, I literally thought I was actually slowly going mad. I thought I was losing my shit. I thought I was literally going mad. I I kept wondering if I was in some sort of weird, bizarre time loop thing. Um, because I would have these whole days of where the whole thing just felt like I was walking in treacle. And I and then it was like everybody was in slow motion. And so And then I would be like, oh, they're going to say this next. Then they're going to say that. Then they're going to do that. Then they're going to pick up the cup. And, you know, and I would be able to like, because it was like, I felt like I'd been through it all before. And it was, that was very difficult and really, really hard. Um, I once ran out into the street at 15. A car nearly hit me to grab a person that wasn't actually there. Mm. Um, So, you know, at that point, I was convinced that although I felt like I was going mad, I was convinced I wasn't mad. And I was intelligent enough to be like, don't be telling people this is what's going on with you. So I got really into science at that point in time. And I was a giant science nerd because I needed science to explain what the feck was going on for me. Mm-hmm. And I just prayed and I hoped that what you know that science would have answers for what the hell was going on and you know so my love of science was born during that time of uh, during that time my love of science was really born and and you know and I studied a lot of different sort of scientific you know biology student chemistry student physics student um, and so and I was obsessed with it I was absolutely obsessed with it but I needed to be because it was going to give me an explanation of what, why my brain was wired in the way that it was wired. And I was really determined that I wasn't like crazy. Um, I felt very much sane. I felt very much a rational person, except I was having these very much insane experiences. Um, but considering how often I was right, you know, like I would finish a person's sentence and they were like, oh my God, I was just going to say that. I knew that there was something more to it. I mean, the data was literally pointing to there is something more here. It wasn't a case of the data is pointing to, yes, you are absolutely batshit crazy. Time for the straitjacket. And I was like, no, I'm not going to have that. So, and this went on for a number of years and I got married really young. The first time I kissed my husband, uh, it was just uh, 16 and uh, I was staying overnight at a friend's house and I came home I went after, uh, after the end of the night we were getting into bed at night and I said last thing I said before I got went to sleep is I apparently looked my best friend straight in the face and I said that's the man I'm gonna marry and she <laughs> said oh now I know you know now I know you're you're off your rocker you know and I was like no it is and about four, five years later, I did marry him. And say, and so I had my first two children, I had them very young and very close together. So there's only 14 months between them. So I had Daniel just as I was turning 21, and I had Ellen when I was 22. So became a young mum really, really early on. And then I think this is not a very popular opinion for women to sort of really talk about, but I realized I didn't really come out of the mold that mothers come out of, you know, like Mm -hmm. the 1950s housewife routine did not complete me. And I think as a woman, it's a very taboo thing to say because we're supposed to be so fulfilled by our children. And I loved my children dearly and they fulfilled me in one aspect, but there was something I needed something for myself. And so at the age of 23, I began my first business. And I began my first brick and mortar business. I began a designer wear clothing shop. 
Um, between the ages of 23 and 26, with two small children, newly married, I built four six-figure businesses wow. and then worked in them all. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time, at the age of 23, um, I was invited to come along to a spiritualist church. Um, at this point, I had openly rejected religion. Um, I had already determined that organized religion was not for me. Um, I my personal experience with organized religion was that they did not like people who asked questions, and I had mm-hmm. so many questions. So we were just never going to be a good fit. So I don't even know what made me say yes to coming to a spiritualist church, but I think it was being told that it was different to a regular church. And I thought, okay, well, let's, because I was very interested in, so in, in amongst my interest in science, I also had a massive interest in religious philosophy and religion. So by the age of 23, I'd read a number of different types of Bibles. So the Christian Bible, different versions of the Christian Bible. I'd read things like the Quran. I'd read things like uh, the Torah. I had read books, the Vedic Vedic texts, um, books on Hare Krishna. Um, I was, religion was something that really fascinated me and, um, and things. So I go along to the spiritualist church and instead of a minister, they have a medium. And the job of the medium is to prove life after death. And it's called evidential mediumship. And it's Mm. to prove that the soul is everlasting. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love. I just, just remember sitting and feeling so at peace and feeling so at home and watching the medium, and of course, because I have spiritual sight, I knew that the medium was genuine because I could see the people standing behind her taking their turns to speak through her. Uh-huh. And she gave these incredible messages. But as she gave these incredible messages, I saw the people in the audience. I saw like a light switch on in them and the healing that took place. The knowing that their loved one was alive, knowing that their loved one was safe in the spirit world. And I just felt in that room, nothing but love. And Mm. the other thing that I adored about being in the spiritualist church was that people were there from every faith Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they didn't care. They didn't care. Like there was Muslim people there. There was Islamic people there. There was Christians. There was born again Christians. You know, there was a Buddhist you know, it had it all. And I loved that because for me, that was the one thing that seemed to be so missing in religion in the fact that they all apparently professed to preach love, but there was so much judgment. And here we really truly were sat in the spiritualist church there for the love of spirit, there to prove that the soul was everlasting. And there we were united in love. And it didn't matter what you went and what you went and did on a Sunday and, and, you know, what church or whatever you went to on a Sunday or whether you were, you know, there was even people who were atheists there. And, mm. you know, and it was and it was a very inclusive and, and open sort of circle. So very shortly after that, I began sitting in circle. And then in 2000, so that was in October 99, I opened my first business. In 2000, I opened a cafe. Um, and so I actually began hosting the circle in the cafe. So the teacher would come and then all the circle members. So sitting in circle was learning to develop my spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that I'd done any type of training on my spiritual gifts. Um, but that was a whole conversation with my husband first. Um, I'd always yeah, felt I was like wondering spirit. about that. Yeah, Whether that was a would, whole conversation with my husband. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'd always felt like my spiritual gifts were like a door where the door was always there was always someone at the door knocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I knew that if I opened that door, it would be a door that would never be closed again. It's not a door that was possible to close again. Yes. Um, and so even at sort of 23, 24, I had that insight. And so I sat my husband down and I said to my husband, I really want to explore this. And I really want, you know, it's a big part for me. And I really want to explore this. But I know once I open this door, I will be forever changed. Um, and 
it's a lot because I'm I'm going, you know, I know that this will change me. And, um, you know, and I want kind of in a way I was looking for his blessing to do this because obviously, you know, I'd made a commitment to to him and to our marriage. And I wanted to honor that commitment. And I felt it was only fair to, you know, if this was something that he was really dead against, that we would have that conversation. And he said, I don't want you to worry. It's obvious that this is your path. He says, I may never understand what's going on, but I'll always be two paces behind. Mm. And that was it. And I just took the leap. Within six months of sitting in circle, they asked me to start doing the platform mediumship in the church. Wow. So I then started working because my gifts literally were already there. They were already there. Showing yeah. how to use them for the very yeah. first time, like in a purposeful way. Yeah. And so I started giving, I started giving messages um to people. Um, and then when they discovered that I had been reading tarot since 15, they asked me if I would start teaching tarot. And I said, sure, no problem. I can teach you um, what I know. So then I began. So I really began sort of spiritual teaching around 23 mm-hmm. was my first class that I ever did. And then I taught uh, tarot. I taught divination. I taught tea leaf reading. Um, a lot of the ancient sort of traditions. I've even taught classes on things like astral projection. Um, I taught classes on um, on all different types of divination from crystal ball gazing to um, reading ribbons to lots of different discipline, like things like pyromancy and aeromancy, which pyromancy is the fire, gazing into the fire, aeromancy is looking at the clouds and mm-hmm. things like that. So I've always been really fascinated with divination. So I'm I'm literally pretty much, there's not many sort of thing, tools of divination that I've come across that I'm not able to access and use. So yeah, yeah. I had one of, I was at a Halloween party a number of years ago where a woman used um, cooked roasted pumpkin seeds and would take a, you know, people would grab a handful of pumpkin seeds and scatter them across this drum and she'd read the pumpkin seeds and then you'd get to eat them at the end of the, at the, end of the reading. But yeah, I, it's just in my experience, it's like, once you understand the nature of divination, you can use nearly anything to. Absolutely. I mean, I remember once reading carpet, um, which is probably my most bizarre thing, but it was, I was actually sitting in a a psychic workshop and I was tuning in, uh, but the images were appearing in the carpet Mm -hmm, and I was mm -hmm. just reading what I was seeing. And the person was like, oh my God, I can, yes, that's true. And and I, and I would look at the, keep looking at this very, but you know, like those really horrible hotel carpets that are super like basically if somebody spewed on them, nobody would know because it's like, it's got every color going anyway. Yes. It was one of them. So I was just like looking at, and I just kept looking at the carpet and the next image would appear and the next image would appear and the next image would appear. And it was just this very, very bizarre, but very cool. And, you know, that was, yeah, divination is, you can use anything. Once you understand anything. the principles, it is really, I mean, it's just a medium like paint is a medium for a canvas. But once you learn how to paint, maybe you want to put pencil on there or maybe you want to put bits of wallpaper on there, you know. It's once the principle of making a picture is understood, you can use pretty much anything to make a picture. And it's the same thing with divination. Yeah. Once you've understood the principles, you can use anything as your medium and your tool. Yeah. So my guides are like, <laughs> the council is like, she keeps asking me this question. And so wait, going dialing way back when you were talking about having sight, And, you know, and being that that was the one thing you couldn't turn off, but you had this ability and that, but you also realized that you saw the world really differently than other people. I've been wondering if you're watching a movie or something on a digital screen or TV or something, do you see all of the energy in the image or in the movie, or do you see what ordinary people see? in the, you know, like of just the, just the visual, like the visual image. And then actually, do you notice a difference between like you and I are in a live, live broadcast right now where we are communicating directly and exchanging mm-hmm. energy? Do you find there's a difference between in what you see with like a Zoom session like this 
versus when you are watching like a recorded film acted played thing? It's a really interesting question because it does vary from medium to medium, basically, mm-hmm. like what I'm watching and what I'm looking at. I think a lot of it has to do with where my energy is invested. So mm-hmm. for instance, if it's a movie I'm really into, the colors are all there and things are all going on. But if it's if it's just something that I'm seeing, then I I probably see that like regular people. It's, yeah. you know, it, it's an image. Yeah. Um, when I'm on a Zoom session, that makes no difference. I see all the colors. I see all yeah. the things. So um, that, that makes zero zero difference uh, time space things like that doesn't um sometimes i've seen images that like movies and things like that and um in maybe seen that movie as though the way others would see that but then just have knowings about things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so like impress i will get impressions and stuff like that um and then if, if i think back on that movie and i sort of recall a, a scene from the movie in my head the funny thing is when i recall the scene that's when the different levels of energy will be in it but maybe i didn't see it like that to start with mm-hmm. so it's really it just kind of varies so i do feel like there is a level of my own intentionality that's in there of like how focused I am on something. Um, And certainly as I've gotten older, I've managed to be able to even get a control of the spiritual side as well. So it's not something, you know, I used to find um, anywhere that was extremely busy and had a lot of people very hard because obviously it's like colors laying on top of colors, on top of colors, on top of colors. So it can feel very overwhelming. And it can actually also give you this feeling of claustrophobia because everywhere you look, there's, literally energy and so it can feel very like but now I'm able to kind of like almost tune it out so you know imagine that those colors were so vibrant and it feels like they're coming at you what I've been able to do now is to kind of I called it shielding Mm -hmm. Um, and so I place shields up and then as I do, it's like the colors fade and they're very, very faded. And then if I see a color or a pattern of energy, I think, oh, that looks interesting. It's like we focus into it and then the colors get brighter. And then I can then I can start to understand the knowledge of what what has been sort of said to me in the ether. Yeah. So then I'm like, oh, right. OK, well, that that must mean this or that must mean that, you know. So sometimes um, like this, but. One of the things that I have a real, I kind of, I really get my panties on a bunch over this is even though I've always had these abilities, I actually find these abilities quite rude because just because you're in someone's house, you wouldn't go and look in their knicker drawer, you know? Yes. You go and look and have a poke about in there. And so I try very hard to be respectful of and not tune in. Sometimes in people, sometimes people are what I call a, and this is not to do with human design, it's separate to that, but they are a projector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are somebody who's very loud in their emotions and they project their emotions. Yes. Well, a projector, it is almost impossible um, to tune a projector out if they are screaming their emotions at you. So I remember once being in a shop and I passed a woman and honestly felt winded felt like I couldn't breathe it felt like somebody just took their hand wrapped around my heart and squeezed and I sort of looked up at her and in that instant I knew that this was a woman that was walking through that shop with a broken heart Mm -hmm. something had obviously recently happened to that woman and that had broke her heart you know and that's when you have to have control because my instinct was to go to her and give her a hug and of course mm-hmm. I'm a total freaking stranger right right oh, the right. last thing she's going to want is a strange lady in the shop hugging her yeah um you know but I just knew and in a way I got an impression that she knew that I knew because the fear in her eyes when I looked at her and I I could feel my eyes just going big and and I thought oh like this because my heart clenched so much and I felt like there was a soul recognition in her and she was you know I felt like there was this energy of like oh god please don't say anything you know because I'm trying to keep a brave face here I'm trying to keep my shit together you know and there was this just this 
moment of our souls connecting and you know and those things don't happen often that's I'm usually able to keep a lid on all of that but somebody like that that's going through and trauma is another one you know when people um, will often scream trauma at you if they are very very traumatized and you know like this and they're heightened emotions Mm -hmm. absolutely well and one of the things that I have found to be often the case too is the emotions people don't want to deal with are often the things that are the loudest and Mm. so you know and the basically my theory is that empaths often end up sort of if we don't have our abilities under you know sort of mastered that we are inclined to feel feelings for people who don't want to feel feelings yeah, so what Skylar and my spirit team teaches, so I channel a collective consciousness. Yes, I was going to ask you, when did Skylar show up? So here's Skylar. <laughs> yeah. So I channel a collective consciousness called Skylar, and they've always been present in my consciousness. I've always been aware of a second consciousness in my mind. Even when I was a little child, I would speak to them, but I didn't have their name, Skylar. I used to call them... It, the first name that I ever sort of gave them was the transition team. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, I really believed our mission was to transition people from an asleep state of being into an awakened state of being. Mm-hmm. And, and that's certainly the work that we seem to do together. But Skylar was the name that they gave me a few years ago now. But um, what they say is that when you're an empath, you have a super receiver. So we're all broadcasting. We're all broadcasting towers and we're all yes. broadcasting uh, empaths and we're all got receivers, but empaths have a super receiver. And so one of the things that Skylar has actually taught me, which really blew my mind, is that our emotions are actually not our own. Mm-hmm. They are feedback from the divine feedback matrix. So mm-hmm. basically, if you imagine that you are standing in the center of a giant round domed building that's completely round. So as you look, you can look 365 degrees. The inside of that building has television screens and the, uh, the television screens are the pictures of your life. So as you stand, you can go and look, you can turn in a circle and you will see the pictures of your life 360 degrees. The moment that you think a thought, a thought leaves you and hits the out the walls of your tra- of your domed building. As soon as it hits the walls, the wall translates what is going on for you and brings the motion and sends a signal back. That signal causes an emotion to bloom inside your physical body. But the signal that caused the emotion to bloom inside your signal, your, the signal of the emotion actually came from outside of you, came from the larger part of you, which is the universe. So as an empath, what you're doing is you're actually interrupting other people's signals. So it's as though your receiver picks up their signal. And this is why when you've got somebody who's maybe very over emotional or something like that, or somebody who's let's just be gentle and kind, a bit of a hot mess. When you're in their proximity, they will say things like, oh my God, I feel so great when I'm with you. Yes. You, however, feel like a used Capri Sun juice pouch. Mm -hmm. No wonder, because you just sat for an hour and interrupted every shitty thought signal that they had. So they were sending out the same amount of crappy thoughts that they always were. They were receiving the same amount a telemetry bag from the divine feedback matrix, except this time they weren't getting every signal. They were intercepting. You were getting. You were intercepting it. Yeah. You were intercepting Mm. the signal. Mm -hmm. And for me, that makes perfect sense of Mm -hmm. how that empath works. And I love this idea that, and I also love the concept that Skylar teaches that our emotions are not our own. Because what I love about this is that the emotions are are really just from the divine feedback matrix. And they tell us one thing and one thing only, which is our proximity to source. Yes. Which I really, I really love that piece of teaching because what, how I've adapted that for my own life and how I use that for my own life is before when I used to really truly believe that my emotions were all mine and they were, you know, I would... I would really take them on. 
now knowing that they are just a feedback loop, I can surf my emotions instead of getting into them. And that doesn't mean that I'm bypassing my emotions. I still allow myself to feel my emotions, but the attachment that I once had to my emotions is lessened by hundredfold, if not a thousandfold. I'm no longer attached to my emotions. I have them, they pass through me. They let me know where I'm at. They let me know where I'm at in my proximity to source. They let me know my outer world around me, but no longer do I become them. Um, And that's been huge for me because that means I no longer ride the seven seas of the emotional roller coaster that many, many people ride on a daily basis. And they find life, you know, running up and down and things like that. And also understanding that from an empath point of view as well is that knowing that my super receiver may be interrupting signals of others, it's Mm -hmm. allowed me to also understand that's not mine either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And detach from that too. So yeah, so I started When I started teaching the law of attraction, I started teaching the law of attraction in 2006. And that's when I first started uh, noticing Skylar was Mm -hmm. present. I opened up a Q&A. So I did my first law of attraction talk in Borders bookstores. So in my local Borders at the time. So I went into the bookstore and held a talk all on the law of attraction. I pulled out several titles that the bookstore sold, like The Secret and other titles like that, like Esther and Jerry Hicks and and people like that, that kind of titles. And I pulled them out. And then I gave a lecture on how to use the law of attraction. And then I opened up the floor to Q&A at the end. And I remember somebody just asking this question and I had no idea. I can't remember now what the question was, but I just remember them asking the question thinking, wow, that's a really great question. I actually have zero idea what the answer is. Went to say great question, but I have no idea. And the most sublime, incredible answer came out of my mouth. And at first I was like, am I tripping here? And so I'm looking around and I'm looking around at the audience and the audience is all sat there like, that was so good. And the person that had asked the question, their tears are rolling down their face. And I'm like, did that make sense? And are you okay? And they were like, yes, that's fine. You know, they were so emotional. And I was like, oh, okay. So I thought, well, nobody sort of caught me that I was like, that something really weird just happened. So I just carried on with the Q&A. But then from, there was a lot more questions that I didn't know the answer to. And the answers just kept coming out of my mouth. Um, so the next time I went back to do a talk at Borders, I asked my brother and my mother to come with me and to record the session so that we could hear, you know, the, the answers and things like that. So, because afterwards, There was some questions I totally recalled and I recalled the answers with complete crystal clear clarity. But there was other questions when this other thing felt like it had taken over me and was answering that I couldn't quite remember what I had said. (laughs) And I I was like, what is going on? So what I was doing back then, I was really channeling. Um, And that's how I began sort of really channeling Skylar. And it just grew. I mean, it grew from there. And the more that I began to share their wisdom, the more that started pouring through and coming through. So in 2007, 2008, um, that's when I hit my huge burnout at that point. Because I was still, even though I was teaching the law of attraction, I was still running my, I had shops, I had a cafe, I had a a business partnership in a shoe shop, I had a spiritual events pop-up company. So I'd had a lot on my plate over those previous years. And you had two small children. Two small children, yeah. Hubby, cat, house, car, all the modern day pressures that everybody else has as well. So I had all of that going on. Um, And... I very much had a lot of self-limiting beliefs, uh, which thank goodness I do not carry these days anymore. But one of the big self-limiting beliefs I had is you have to work hard for money. And another self-limiting belief was that, you know, if you really wanted to get ahead in life, you really had to put the work in. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I held those beliefs really, really dear. Um, I back then I would have been very, very proud of my hustle. I would have thought anybody that wasn't hustling, they were a little bit of a loser. That was my my very judgy opinion back then. So everything I'm running a million miles an hour. I've got my circle going on. I'm I've got my businesses. At this point, I had three shops. I had given up the cafe at that point. I was three shots. I at one stage I had 25 employees. Um, you know, we had a lot going on. Um, one morning having breakfast, um, finished my cereal, went to put the cereal bowl away into the kitchen and looked down and thought, that's very strange. That floor looks like it's rising, like mm-hmm. it's coming up. What I didn't realize was I was collapsing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The next thing I remember is somebody shining a torch in my eye and me leaning against my my living room sofa um, and somebody saying, do you know where you are? And, and I thought, what's going on? Because I had no recollection of of like being in the like, you know, of how I would got where I was and, and things like that. So then the next part of the memories are like snapshots like pictures they're not like fully formed memories of your memory looks like a movie it's almost like fragmented like pictures and uh, so the next thing I remember is somebody across my chest inside an ambulance later on I was told that they were intubating me on the side of the road because I was crashing then I arrived to the hospital and um, then I the next thing I remember is waking up in a hospital bed. I had no recollection of how I got out of the ambulance, how I I must have been in the ER, but I have no memory of being in the ER and then going to a ward and uh, waking up on the ward. That was the next thing that I remember. Then I remember just sleeping a lot and going and every so often being woken up to be taken to the next test, the next test, the next test. After two days of testing, they couldn't really figure out what was wrong with me. And the official diagnosis was multiple organ failure. Every soft tissue organ in my body was failing from liver, kidneys, um, digestion. I was no longer digesting food. Um, basically, they were baffled because this is what they see in a woman who's maybe 90 years of age, who's lived a long and healthy life, and that she's literally just come to the end of her life. And my body was literally shutting itself down, mm. showing all the signs of like what you would see in old age. Um, I think part of them, they thought that I'd maybe like done some sort of substance abuse or anything like that. But you know, that wasn't my scene. That wasn't what I was into at all. So no, that wasn't me. And um, I just, again, it was very fragmented, very snapshotty. There was a quite a good looking doctor and he was my doctor and he sits on my bed. Like he didn't sit on the chair. He sat on my bed. And I remember thinking, God, that's a bit fresh. Then he took my hand and I was like, oh, I don't know if I like this at all. You know, I'm a married woman. I'm like, what are you doing? And then he's like, he's trying to deliver the dear John, you know, like, so every soft tissue organ in your body is, is failing. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh. So, and you know, he's trying to get out of the words to tell me that I am dying. And he is, he's visiting every house in the freaking village. In the end, I just had to say, listen, I'm sorry. I don't speak doctor speak, just layman's terms this for me. And he says, you're dying and you need to prepare your family for your passing. And I went, it's like, oh, okay. And I thought, well, fuck, this wasn't in the life plan. Mm. And so I went into this really weird space and I started planning in my head of like, could my mum continue to run my shops and pay my husband a wage so he could keep the family going with the kids and stuff like that? And I'm I'm halfway down that rabbit hole when I catch myself and I just hear this voice in my head and says, are you planning on dying? And I thought, no. So what are you doing right now? Mm. And that was a moment I decided this is not how my story ends. And I was like, no. This is not how my story ends. Um, and I just decided at that point, this was not how my story ends. And I just made that decision. And they asked me if I wanted to see a priest. And 
had a very awkward conversation about that. That was quite funny because it's like, no, I'm I'm a spiritualist. We don't really go in for priests. Oh, what do you go in for then? You know, like this whole, I had so many weird, like little weird memories that I have from that time in my life. Um, after about 11 days in hospital, I signed myself out. Wow. And a... I needed to sign myself out. Everybody in the hospital was expecting me to die. Right. And I needed to be around people that expected me to live. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, because I was determined this is not how my story ends. So my liver function had shown a couple of points of improvement. And that was good enough for me that I was moving in the right direction. It was a start. It was an increment. And I was like, I now need to focus on like my mental health to literally by force of will heal myself. So I signed myself out of the hospital. I phoned my husband and told them, told my husband a bit of a white lie that they had released me. They were like, we can't give you oxygen. We can't give you anything. Like we can only give you pain relief. I'm like, fine, that's fine. Like whatever. I was so determined. I was just going to say whatever to get myself out of there. So I mm-hmm. leave the hospital. I can hardly breathe because they were assisting me with my breathing. They'd have been assisting me with nearly everything, all of the functions. So for the first week of being a home after multiple organ failure, I was laying on the couch. I was very, very weak. I could hardly walk. I could hardly do anything for myself. And we had these patio doors. And even though it was October at the time, the patio doors were cracked um, to let lots of oxygen in and I literally that's how I was getting my oxygen because they couldn't give me like an oxygen tank or anything like that to take with me so and they're really and I would I would just like try and breathe steadily this lovely highland air and that was from this cracked window so that fresh air was coming into my home and that first day that I arrived there I was very weak but I I said to my husband I need my journal And he got me my journal and I wrote probably one of the bravest lines that I've ever written in my own, in my whole life. And the line that I wrote in my journal was extreme self-abuse got me here. And it was the first time that I had ever admitted Mm. that extreme self-abuse had got me there. And whereas my drug of choice wasn't, thank you, whereas my drug of choice wasn't, you know, things like alcohol or drugs, my drug of choice had been work. Yes. And I had to admit that I was a workaholic. I'd admit that I was an overachieving workaholic. And that was my drug of choice. That was my way to self-abuse myself. And the realization of writing that line and the the courage it took to write that line and admit that to myself, um, meant that I also needed to look at it for a solution. And the next thing that I wrote was, I need to learn extreme self-love. And it wasn't enough just to learn self-love. It had to be extreme self-love because it had been extreme self-abuse that had got me. And if I was to get myself out of the contrast of the extreme abuse, I was going to have to get myself into the contrast of extreme self-love. It, it was this. I this needed more than a bubble bath. Um, and so I began this slow journey of, um, you know, from that first journaling session, I realized I didn't know the first fucking thing about self-love. Not one iota did I know about it. Um, you know, beyond a bubble bath, I had no idea what self-love even freaking looked like. Um, so it became a journey of exploration. Um, life had completely changed from that point onwards. My life had been completely turned upside down. Um, I ended up selling my shops. Um, we ended up living from, you know, a steady stream of income coming in to living on welfare. Uh, but little by little, increment by increment, I was left in an aftermath of five abdominal, uh, abdominal surgeries um, that I had to have on the various things that had gone wrong inside my body from the multiple organ failure. Um, I had a third of my liver removed um, in a massive cancer scare in one of the operations. And then I had chronic fatigue chronic unexplained pain syndrome because I couldn't explain where the pain was coming from but 
I would be like my joints were like they felt like they were on fire Mm. and then I had six months of what we have dubbed as autoimmune hellishness Mm -hmm. and for me, autoimmune hellishness was literally six months of where I felt like I had become allergic to the world. Mm-hmm. So I was over at a friend's house and I had a glass of water. Now we live in the Highlands. We have excellent water. It's really good, high quality that comes out of our taps. We're extremely fortunate here in the north of Scotland. Um, I had a glass of water out of our taps. I drank water out of the taps. I don't know how many times. Uh, because the water came out of her tap and not my tap, um, my entire inside of my mouth blistered and all down my throat. And these were like daily things that I was battling at that point in time. Foods that I had been completely fine with suddenly would get massive, like almost to the point of anaphylactic, mm-hmm. you know, reactions and things like that. So things were during that time were really, really difficult. I'm struck by the fact that you made the decision, and I think this is something people don't always can take into consideration, or they think like you make the decision and everything's going to be really groovy. And I'm really struck by the fact that like you signed yourself out of the hospital, you recognized that you that self-abuse got you where you were and that self-love was the key and the way through it. Mm. But then you really had to go through like you had to slog through a lot as you know as we would say wade through molasses as you were saying walking through treacle but it's like you really did have like a gauntlet to run after you made the decision that you were going to take care of yourself and i just want to like i think that there are a lot of people who probably really would have given up with everything that you endured during that period of time it was really, I mean, it was extremely difficult. And then on top of that, we were dealing with things like poverty as well. Yeah. So we were dealing with very much lack um, and a lot of lack consciousness to go with it. So a lot of fear around money. Money had become a very hot topic in our family. Um, I was constantly worried constantly worried about money and you know then you're trying to heal on top of that and things like that a huge turning point came for me when I decided I um I watched a documentary called fat sick and nearly dead mm-hmm. yes. by a man called Joe Cross and um I saw his documentary and I also knew another man called Jason Vale and I'd been seeing his stuff coming up and things like that Um, And Jason Vale is here in the UK. He's known as the Juice Master. And I decided uh, that I would start a 30-day reboot. Um, When I was watching the the documentary of Fat Sick and Nearly Dead, one of the things that I recognised was um, I had this epiphany while watching it, which was that I don't know if it was something that was said in the documentary or not, but the body always seeks to create homeostasis. Yes which is why it took so long because it wasn't like I got multiple organ failure and it was like, boom, out of the blue. I had every freaking warning sign that the universe could possibly send you before I had multiple organ failure. So like I took a Bell's palsy. And when I just, when I knew, cause I thought I'd had a stroke because one side of my face collapsed. So when I took that Bell's palsy and then discovered, but here, listen, this is how hardcore I was. When I discovered I had a Bell's palsy and not a stroke, I was like, oh, great. I can continue to work in the office. Couldn't work out where the customers were because I looked around like half my face had literally collapsed. But the doctor assured me that the muscles would go back into place on my face. So I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. Like I can just work in my office. You know, honestly, you know, I was absolutely so determined, like this was, you know, I was going to work and I was going to make something of myself and I was going to do all of the, these things. And, you know, and then the the multiple organ failure was this great, great pause. Yeah. And and as I, I went through this kind of very big transition and this great pause and and stuff, it really did change everything for me. And a lot of the wisdom that I have today to share with others came from these experiences and they were very very humbling experiences because I wasn't just a little bit independent I was uber independent 
I needed nothing and no one in my life. I literally was a one woman army machine. And I went from that to not even being able to take care of my basic needs. Mm, mm, mm. During the the chronic fatigue, um, it's very, very worst. Um, The very worst part of the chronic fatigue, I would maybe be awake for two hours in a 24 hour period and the rest. And, you know, and I had young children and, and, you know, and it was, uh, so my husband had become my carer um, obviously it affected my children's lives and things like that as well. And it was really difficult. And I, um, I remember speaking to Skylar about everything and I, I had, uh, the turning point came during the 30 day juice cleanse that turned into 44 days because I enjoyed it so much and I loved it. And I made handmade vegetable juices. But you have no idea how many people on this planet, when you are giving your body nothing but pure vegetables and fruit, how many people like to tell you that that's unhealthy? But their yeah. beige burger and their French fries. <laughs> Yeah, that that's a staple of a good or, or meal. The, where like, will you get your protein? That was one of the because I've done a long term juice cleanse myself before, and uh, it it really is like where will you get your protein, Joanna? I cannot believe how fast time has flown by. Honestly, I hope that you will come back for like a second part of this conversation because I, I it just. To. I would love to continue this conversation and we are getting like the, we're, we're sort of like right at that end point. And this story is so incredibly rich. I first, I just want to thank you for your authenticity, for your honesty, for like really being so, so just giving us the true, true and not like sugarcoating a really challenging situation and just being you like, thank you so much. So before I completely let you go, because I mean, you guys, there really is a part two, like this really is sort of a stay tuned because we've heard the experience of what it was like to get to the point of multiple organ failure and what happened. But then like I work with Joanna for a reason, because this is somebody who has been through multiple organ failure and actually has found their way through where it's not just a perpetual relentless work cycle. It's not just Mm -hmm. a, you know, like there isn't enough to go around, but instead, you know, your life, like you are running a, just a spectacular business, teaching other people how to run spectacular businesses and helping people to awaken to their soul. I mean, I can absolutely. And I get so much pleasure from that. And I mean, last year we had a million dollars in sales in ease, joy and flow. And that's one of my I I love that achievement um, in the fact that I'd hustled so hard for so many years. And here I am getting a result that I could only once have dreamt of in complete ease, joy and flow coming from a space of total abundance within my own self and self-love at the helm instead of that horrible self-abuse at the helm that had once been at the helm but now it's not how we roll anymore hustle is for people who don't know how to flow Mm, hustle is for people who don't know how to flow so joanna i've got i've basically got sort of three questions first question is what one burning truth or nugget do you feel like you would be remiss to not share right now? I think as an empath, if I can give you one piece of advice as an empath is be true to yourself above all others. And it is not an easy path to walk because we are conditioned not to walk that path. We're told it's selfish. But I believe that anything good in your life is going to stem from your own energy. And if you can align yourself to your own energy and be true to that above all others, you're already going to be so ahead of the game than anyone else. You know, that is the fundamental key to unlocking an unlimited life. Mm. Be true to yourself. And now my favorite question that I've been using in, in this season with everybody is, I really believe that these broadcasts that, you know, are like a ribbon in time 
and that we have the ability to not only that this broadcast and the signal is going forward in time, but also it reaches back in time and that this is sort of like the broadcast is like a ribbon of time that folds over on itself. And there is a point that you and I are here, but we are able to reach that struggling Joanna from another time. Now, I don't know whether this would be like 10 year old Joanna who's moving from Scotland to I mean, from from Sweden to Scotland, whether it is like Joanna, a 14 year, year old Joanna, who's like suddenly the cork is blown open, whether it's Joanna who's lying in a hospital bed with multiple organ failure or maybe all of the all of them. But if you knew that you were back there and you could like you, you know, you and I are just and Skylar and the, you know, the whole gang is just there to give support. If you could look in the eyes of younger Joanna, what would you tell her right now? Make more mistakes. <laughs> make more mistakes. Um, simple, make more mistakes because everything, everything serves you in life. And what you perceive once upon a time as mistakes are the beautiful, incredible contrast to when everything is going swimmingly and gorgeously in your life. And so don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of those things mm. that you perceive as a mistake, because there's going to come a time in your life, you're going to look back and you're going to realize, and you've got a, the gift of hindsight and you realize that horrible thing that you went through or that difficult thing or that challenging thing that you went through is making this moment a million times sweeter. Mm. I think that is the most unique answer that I have heard so far. And I love that. Make more mistakes. Because the other thing is, I know for myself that sometimes the mistake is the feedback that I need to really, really course correct and go in the direction I want to go in. And that if I'm not willing to make the mistakes, I'm never going to find the answers. So, yes, exactly. I mean, I think mistakes are so essential and they're so part of the human condition and they are so vilified and yet they are so essential for progress so essential for progress joanna thank you i'm this has just been such a rich conversation i have you know i feel like i've just been like on a journey with just so many images and so many pieces and so many jewels in this conversation. This has just been so delicious. So how do people get in touch with you? So I'm super easy to find. I'm joannahunter.com on my website. And then I'm Joanna Hunter, the same letter C-O-M. Um, all one word on every social media channel. So I've made it super easy for you to find me. So either joannahunter.com is the website or all social medias is joannahunter.com. Excellent. Excellent. Guys, all of this will be in the show notes. Joanna, thank you so much for this conversation. This has just been so rich. I am so delighted to be here. And thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely my pleasure sharing my story. Yay. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to empathicmasteryshow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And Thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.